Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, The Five Solas, looking at the impact of the five core beliefs of the Reformation 500 years later. Here is Pastor Nick. Open with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That's in the New Testament. You can find it in your Bible or in your phone. If you are using your phone to read the Bible, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app because if you log in, you go to the menu and go to the events section, you'll find live notes. So it's everything that's on the screen and sometimes a little bit more. One of the things we like to do here at Whitefields is we like to study through the Bible. We like to go verse by verse through a text of the Bible so we can hear the whole message in context. And so it's always good to have a Bible with you so that you can follow along and read with us. This year, 2017, marks the 500-year anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, which was a movement of turning back to the Bible, of going back to the scriptures, and of putting the Bible in the hands of the people. And as people read the Bible at this time, they rediscovered the gospel, and their lives and all of history as a result was changed. And this is something we believe in very much here at Whitefields, is that if you will come to the Bible, if you will open up the word of God, you will read it, you will discover in it the good news of Jesus Christ, and your life will be changed forever as well. And so for the anniversary of the Reformation, we are taking a kind of mini-series right now. This is a five-week series. This is week three out of five, in which we're looking at the five core biblical teachings which were at the heart of the Reformation. This week, we are going to be looking at sola gratia, which means grace alone. The Reformers kind of solidified their core doctrines, the biblical doctrines, which they championed into five things that they called the five solas. Sola means alone or only. And they were scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And we're going to talk about all of these over the course of these five weeks. Today, we're going to look at sola gratia, grace alone, and what the Bible has to say about how we can be made right with God and what grace means, because it's even more than salvation. I'll tell you, for me personally, the understanding of grace has been something that has revolutionized my life, my, way, my, my relationship with God, and I hope that uh, this morning as we study about it, it will do something similar for you. So let's begin by reading our text, which comes from Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word, and we come to your word this morning, Lord, with a sense of reverence, desiring to hear you speak to us, and Lord, desiring to be receptive to what you have to say. So this morning, as we gaze into your word, Lord, may we see wondrous things that cause us to well up all the more in praise to you and response, and also, Lord, would they move us and, and move us in our lives, motivate us in the way that we live, Lord, might we be transformed from the inside out as we study your word this morning. We pray that you would do that work in our hearts and in our lives by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the questions that people often ask is, can people really change? Like, can a leopard change his spots? Can a tiger change his stripes? Can a person really change who they are fundamentally? And one of the things that the Bible says is, yes. They can. That's actually very important that we understand that the Bible says, yes, people can change who they are on the inside. But see, the other thing it says is this. It's not an easy thing by any means. In fact, it's, it's actually impossible for someone to just muster it up in themselves and change their stripes, so to say, and change who they fundamentally are. In fact, it's so hard that what it requires in order for a person to change, it requires an act of God. In their life. It requires an act of God in their life in order for them to change. I want to tell you about one man who did experience such a change. He had spent his whole life building a reputation. Maybe some of you can relate to that. He was born into a good family. He was a bright student. In fact, he was so bright and so diligent at his studies as a, a young person that he was accepted into a very prestigious academy. And as a young man, his parents sent him off to live at a boarding school in a faraway town. And you can imagine that they must have been so torn by dueling emotions, right? On the one hand, brokenhearted that their young son would be so far away from home and they wouldn't see him except on rare occasions. And yet, at the, on the other hand, so full of pride at his accomplishments and at his abilities and wanting him to reach his full potential. Well, this young man went off to school in his faraway town, far from home, and after finishing school, he began to climb the ranks and he became a young leader that other leaders looked up to as the future of their community. He prided himself on the fact that he worked harder than anybody else. He put in more effort than anybody else. He cared more than anyone else that he knew. And as a result, he was promoted again and again. And people looked up to him and he thought pretty highly of himself as well. In fact, he looked down his nose at others whom he considered to be below him, others who were not as committed, who didn't work as hard, who were not as moral, who were not as disciplined. This man's name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. We read about him in the Bible, the pages of the book of Acts. Something happened, though, that shook his world, that shook his confidence, that kind of rattled the foundations of his life. He realized there was a crack in what he thought was the firm foundation of his life. And he writes about it in, in the book of Romans, chapter 7. He says that he was thinking about the Ten Commandments, basically kind of going through them and patting himself on the back for keeping them so well, right? Unlike all those other losers out there who don't do it. He's like, I keep the Ten Commandments, feeling pretty good about myself. And, uh, you know, kind of just in his mind, thinking through it, you know. Don't murder. Check. Got that one. Nailed it. Don't lie. Nailed it. Honor the Sabbath. Totally. Don't commit adultery. No problem. I got that one. Don't worship idols. Check. Don't covet. Hey, wait, what? Covet? Wait a second. Don't covet. What does that even mean, don't covet? 
He began to think, well, coveting, what is coveting? What does that even mean? He said, covet means to want something that isn't yours. It's a form of greed. It's a form of jealousy. It's wanting something that someone else has that you don't, and you fantasize about it, what it would be like if you had that thing instead. And coveting is this form of jealousy and greed. And you might say, well, who hasn't done that? I mean, doesn't everybody kind of do that? Well, yeah, but look, this man saw you got to understand, this realization shattered his world. It shattered the image that he had of himself as a good and perfect person who did everything right, who was lived up to a high moral standard. You see, he looked here and he saw, wait a second, I actually do that. In fact, I've been doing that for years. He had thought of himself as a person who was good, who was better than most, better than maybe anybody else. He kept all the rules. He kept all of God's commandments perfectly. And yet here was this commandment, which clearly said that it's not just what you do outwardly that matters. It's also possible to sin inwardly in a way that no one else sees in your heart, that only God sees by having attitudes, by having thoughts by having fantasies that are not right in God's eyes. And at that moment, he was devastated, he said. He said, I looked at the law and it slayed me. He says he came to realize there that here he had been spending all his life looking down on other people, you know, patting himself on the back, priding himself on being better than others. But at the end of the day, the truth was that he was in the same boat as them. He was really no better than they were. Sure, he hadn't killed anybody, but for years... Day in and day out, this was his life. His mind was full of thoughts of covetousness, jealousy, greed, hatred, and vile things. And he thought, oh no, oh no, what does this mean? What am I going to do? He later wrote, like I said, about this experience in Romans chapter 7. And he says, I would not have even known that coveting was a sin unless I had read it in God's law. And it said, do not covet. And then he goes on to say, this law which I look to to give me life now it slayed me, it killed me, because it showed me that there was sin inside of me. It showed me that there was something wrong. Saul realized that he had a problem. He had built his whole life, his whole identity, on being better than everybody else, and now he was brought face to face with the fact that he wasn't, actually. So what did he do? Well, he doubled down. He became more zealous. Maybe if he tried harder, he thought. Maybe if he tried harder, if he did more, then maybe he could atone for the sins that he had done. Maybe God would still accept him if he would just try a little harder and do a little bit more. So he began to fight against the people who he perceived to be the enemies of Judaism. He said, surely God will see that. God will see what I'm doing for him, and he'll, he'll bless me. He'll be pleased with me. Maybe if I do this for God, then it'll make up for the bad things I've done. The people he targeted, of course, were Christians. He accused them of blasphemy because they said that Jesus was God. And so he led a group of people and they would track down these sinners and they would punish them because he thought that's what sinners deserve. Sinners deserve to be punished. The only problem was that was him too. He was also a sinner and he knew it. And no matter how much he tried to run away from his shadow, he couldn't run away from it. Therefore, it only followed that he deserved to be punished too. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. If he was a sinner, 
like a person trying to run away from his shadow. He could never get away from it. You run and you run and you run and then you turn around and it's still there because the issue is you. You can't get away from it no matter how hard you try. And one day, though, something unexpected happened to Saul. One day he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke to him. Saul certainly had not been looking for Jesus. He hadn't been trying to find Jesus. He wasn't seeking. No, he was running. And Jesus came seeking him, pursuing him. And Jesus spoke to Saul that day. And through that encounter, Saul came to understand something about God that changed his life forever. It was the message of grace. The message of grace. It was the message of the gospel. It was the message that God loves those who are unlovely. That God pursues rebels and brings them into his family. And salvation and forgiveness of sins are not things that can be merited or earned, but they are works of God that he does for you in Jesus, even though you don't deserve them. And this man, Saul, he became a Christian. And he was so changed through this experience that he wanted to so distance himself from his past that he took on a new name. He became known as Paul. We know him as Paul the Apostle. And later on in his life, he wrote and he reflected on this time in his life, on his conversion and on his life after that. And here's what he said. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me to be faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And check this out. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The overflowing grace of God not only converted this man from unbelief to faith, but the overflowing grace of God went even beyond that. It gave him the strength that he needed, the fuel that he needed to live a lifetime of love and service to God and to others. You know, the same story, in a way, has been played out time and time again. People trying as hard as they can to be good, falling short, getting to the end of themselves, and then realizing that it's all by grace. Over the past two weeks, I've told you the stories of Martin Luther. I've told you about John Wesley and how they both tried harder to be better so that they could earn God's favor. But no matter how hard they tried, they realized it was an impossible task until both of them discovered this same message, the message of the gospel, that God's love and God's acceptance of you isn't predicated on what you do. It's predicated on what Jesus has done for you. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. These are not things that you can earn. These are not things that you can merit. These are not things that you can deserve. That would be an impossible task. It would be like trying to jump over the Grand Canyon. Just picture that in your mind. You get a couple people, and some of them are going to be better jumpers than others. Like, you might be a super good jumper. You might be a better jumper than anybody else you know. In fact, you might be the best jumper in the world. But if you try and jump over the Grand Canyon, it's still going to end up in the same place. You're going to get maybe a foot or two farther than everybody else, but the end is going to be the same. The good news of the gospel is that what is impossible for you to do by your own efforts, God has done for you on your behalf because he loves you and he did it in Jesus. There is nothing that needs to be added to what Jesus did for you. There's nothing that can be added. It is finished, Jesus said. In other words, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And what's left for you to do is just to receive what he did for you 
by faith. And when you do that, God declares you righteous. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. The problem in Martin Luther's time, the time before the Reformation, was that that is not what was being taught in the churches. It isn't what he had been taught growing up. What he had been taught and what was generally taught and what is still taught in some places even to this day is that in order for God to bless you, in order for God to accept you, in order for God to save you, you need to go through a complicated series of steps and processes that can help you move closer to God, that can help you become acceptable to God. Martin Luther was a priest. He was a man who was dedicated to the church. He was a professor of theology. And what that meant is that he was one of the few people in that day who had access to the Bible. Because see, at that time, the Bible had been effectively taken away from the common people. To read the Bible, you had to read Latin. Very few people spoke Latin. It was kind of weird that they even made the Bible only, it was only legal to have a Bible in Latin, which is weird because nobody spoke Latin for like a thousand years, by the way, at that point. Furthermore, the Bible wasn't even written in Latin. And so they had come up with this rule that the Bible could only be written, read in Latin, but nobody read Latin except for the scholars and the priests and the monks. And so a very elite group of people had access to the Bible. And even those people didn't read the Bible because they had been told that the Bible is just an old, ancient, confusing book, and you're better off just not reading it yourself. Just read, have somebody explain it to you. But Martin Luther said, no, I'm going to read the Bible. So he read the Bible, and what he found in the pages of the Bible was not an obscure message, but one that was very clear, very clear, that salvation is by grace, and it's by grace alone. And of course, that's not what was being taught. And so Martin Luther set out on a process of reforming the church. He felt that it was his duty as, as a person and as a faithful son of the church and as a priest and as a professor, it was his duty to bring the church back to the clear teachings of the Bible. And there were others who joined him, and this movement became known as the Reformation. And as I said earlier, the Reformers summed up five core biblical teachings which they championed. They called them the five solas. And today, of course, we're looking at the third of these, sola gratia, only by grace, grace alone. And here's what that means. Let me sum it up for you in these words. Grace alone means this, salvation and transformation are not accomplished by our own effort or works, but by God's kind initiative. Salvation and transformation are not accomplished by our own efforts or works, but by God's kind initiative. One of the best places we can go in the Bible to see this explained is the text we read here at the beginning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So we're going to look at this text and see what it teaches about the grace of God. And there are three things that we're going to go through. We're going to talk about the walking dead. Then we're going to talk about unmerited favor. And then finally, we're going to talk about fuel for the new life. It begins by talking about who we are and as human beings. And here's what it says. Here's who we are. We are the walking dead in verses 1 through 3. This section begins with these words, which which if they don't surprise you, then you need to read it again because it should surprise you. It says, you were dead. You were dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't recall having ever been dead before. I don't remember it. It seems like something I would remember. I've been really bored before, uh, and I've, but I don't think I've ever been dead as far as I can recall. 
I mean, being dead, that's kind of a, it's a pretty terminal condition, right? Like not a lot of people recover from that. So he says, you were dead in the past tense, meaning you're not dead anymore, which is surprising. So what does that mean? Well, keep reading. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. What he's talking about here, obviously, is not physical death. What he's talking about is a different kind of death. He's talking about spiritual death. Now, I want you to remember the context here. This is a letter which was written to Christians. Okay, so that's why he can speak in the past tense. To these Christians, he's writing in the past tense. And in just a second, he's going to finish this phrase. And he's going to say, you were once dead, but now you've been made alive in Christ. And he's going to talk about how that change took place. But what all this means is that this is the default setting of all of humanity, of all human beings. This is how we all start out. This is everyone's condition apart from an act of God in their life. Death, spiritual death and deadness. We read about a conversation that Jesus had once with a man named Nicodemus. He was, he was a well-known religious leader at that time, but he was interested in Jesus. He wanted to know more, and so he came to meet Jesus in the middle of the night so that no one would see him. And he, he asked Jesus, he says, I've heard about you. I've heard about the things that you do. Can you just tell me, just sum it up for me, what is the core message that you came to, to preach and to give? And Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was how Jesus summed up his message that he came to be about. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And at first, Nicodemus wasn't picking up what Jesus was putting down. And he said, how do you expect me to do that? You expect me to get back in my mother's uterus and then come out again? I mean, I don't think she would like that very much. She'd probably get injured if I tried to do that. And I don't really want to try and do that myself. And Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. He says, you, look, you were born once physically, but what you need is to be born again spiritually. That's what he's talking about. So spiritually dead. Sounds pretty bad. It sounds pretty, pretty extreme. But I'll tell you what, it gets actually worse than that. How you may say, well, what's worse than being dead? Well, keep reading. Verse 2. He says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, and you were living according to the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The prince of the power of the air, by the way, that's a reference to Satan. So not only were you dead, but you were a slave. That's the only thing that's worse than being dead, is being walking dead, being a dead person who's a slave. This is what it says in Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Slaves to passions and pleasures. In other words, apart from God, you are not free. Apart from God, you are dead and you are a slave. You are a slave to your passions. You're a slave to your feelings. You're a slave to your pleasures. The highest authority in your life, in other words, is whatever you feel like in the moment. And that's not freedom, let me tell you that. Because the more you give into that, the more it will ultimately destroy you. Let me give you an example. Just over the past few weeks, if you've been reading the news, you've been noticing that it seems like every day there's another famous person who's getting taken down in the news. So all these famous people, we've got actors, producers, comedians, politicians, and it, just one after another, it's coming out again and again that these people did inappropriate, lewd, downright criminal things. 
And, and people who kept quiet about these things for years, now they're kind of coming out of the woodwork and talking, and it seems like every day we're hearing about another public figure who's getting busted for some lewd and inappropriate thing that they did. And I was reading one of these articles describing what one of these people did, and I, I won't go into details, but essentially he was just saying, well, I felt like doing it, so I did it. Sorry, I guess it was wrong. And that's what that means. It's people who gave into their feelings, who went along with what their bodies wanted to do in that moment, even though it was wrong, even though it was harmful, even though it was destructive to other people and to themselves. It's a perfect picture of how if you are not ruled by God, you will be a slave to something else. Many times it will be your own feelings or your own passions or your own desires. And here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us that out of all of the living creatures in the world, there is something special there's something different about human beings. And the Bible puts it this way. The, the thing that makes us different, it's not our opposable thumbs or the fact that we have developed linguistics. It's that we alone were created in God's own image. So that when God created the man and the woman, he created them in his image. And that what exactly that means has been you know, a matter of interest for people who have read the Bible for thousands of years. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.